Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Bryce Bongiovanni, your host and recent graduate student from the University of Georgia. Today, I'm talking to Scott Ickes. Scott is a professor at the University of South Florida and the author of African-Brazilian Culture and Regional Identity in Bahia, Brazil, part of the New World Diaspora series from the University Press of Florida. Scott, I'm so glad to have you with us. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about my book. Great. Um, so to begin with, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, your academic experience, and how you got drawn to this? I grew up in Pittsburgh. I grew up in a small uh, steel town in western Pennsylvania, um, outside of Pittsburgh. Um, I went to uh, Denison University um, in the 80s. And in the 80s, at a small undergraduate college, if you were politically inclined, interested about in the wider world, you pretty much had two choices, and one was to get involved in, in um, uh, protests against apartheid and divestiture, or uh, you could look more towards uh, Reagan's policies in Central America and trying to make sense of you know, where you stood in regard to um, the U.S. government, the State Department, Gene Kirkpatrick's positions on the Sandinistas and the FMLN in uh, El Salvador. I chose Central America. At that point, then, I went on uh, to do an MA um, in Central American history. That was going to be one of the ways that I sort of looked to the past to try and make sense of of, uh, what I'd been studying in the 1980s and and early 1990s with regard to the Civil Wars and the Cold War and U.S. policy in Central America. Um, I drifted more towards questions of culture. I became more interested in in, uh, anthropological ideas of identity, ethnicity, and especially um, cultural groups or ethnic groups and their relationship to the dominant culture, um, the state, for example, um, in Central America. But I was also um, working um, with two African historians looking a lot at the relationships between ethnic groups in in Africa and the colonial state, but also uh, the post-colonial state as well. So with that set of intellectual interests. Um, I set about putting together a, a PhD program that was going to get me involved in Guatemalan ethno-history and looking at uh, the penetration of capitalism from Guatemala City into the Cachiquel-speaking areas um, outside the city during a dictatorship uh, in the 30s and 40s. And at that point, uh, Daryl Williams, a Brazilianist, came to the University of Maryland where I was, where I was doing my work. And I talked to him about my intellectual interests, and we talked about possibly switching over to, to uh, do, doing Brazilian history, or at least a minor in Brazilian history. And when he heard the sorts of things that I was actually interested in, he suggested that I look at a similar set of circumstances in the northeast of Brazil, in the state of Bahia, um, in the 30s and 40s. He was also uh, turning his dissertation into a book, and he was writing, he, he was writing on cultural policy, cultural nationalism and uh, federal institutions during a dictatorship in the 1930s and 40s 
And it was a dictatorship that was very keen on um, uh, deepening its industrialization, uh, processes of modernization, nation state and national identity formation. Uh, so the, the intellectual interest really did line up quite nicely. And uh, there was just a small matter of um, learning uh, another language, Portuguese right. in this case, and also the historiography. But uh, Daryl, uh, thankfully, was very supportive and said, you know, if you're willing to take on those challenges, um, I can, I can, I'm willing to supervise your PhD. That got me started into to looking at Bahia. Right. So um, how, what, where did you get started in this, this particular question of the public uh, Afro-Brazilian cultural practices in Bahia? Because I think the, the major aspect of African-Brazilian culture that comes through in your book that is, that is being uh, put to work by different people in Bahia at this time are these these public performances of that of that culture? Um, you know, public uh, religious performances of candomblé, uh, capoeira, the uh, kind of dance martial art, uh, um, samba, uh, and the various uh, you know religious festivals, and of course the carnival, uh, all of which mm. are very public, very obvious spectacles um, that people are, are witnessing. And, yeah, and yeah. What, what drew you to those, that particular, particular topic? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, <clears throat> we had, so the 30, for the period 1930 to 1954, it's known as the, the Vargas era. Uh, it's so named after its, its leading political figures, Getulio Vargas. Um, he came into power in 1930 uh, on the back of a military coup. He, runs the country as sort of provisional president, president, then uh, a dictator between 1937 and 1945. There's a sort of an, an interregnum in his his uh, power between 45 and 50. He comes back into power in 1951 as an elected president uh, until 1954 when he um, ends his political career through suicide. We had uh, a significant amount of historiography on and it was, a, it, was, it was a burgeoning field on uh, the Vargas era in the southeast, uh, Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. And it seemed in the 90s that the next step was to look at how the, the Vargas era played out and these big processes of industrialization and, and modernization and national identity formation, how this played out in, in the regions. And that was then what I was going to look at in, in, in the case of Bahia. However, the source base for the 30s and 40s in Bahia was practically non-existent for political and economic history. Um, So this presented uh, an obvious challenge, but it it let me off the hook as well because I didn't really want to write um, a political and and economic history. I I really was, not in a traditional sense anyway, I I really was um, much more interested in the culture arena and much more interested in, in, in cultural history. And it turns out that that's, seemed to have been the place where there was the most dynamism and the most dynamic interaction between the dominant class and the subordinate class. Uh, so in this cultural uh, arena, at least in, in my eyes anyway, and the 30s and 40s in Bahia were also a heyday for social science. Uh, both North American uh, social scientists and Brazilian social scientists were looking at Bahia uh, in the 30s and 40s quite closely, writing rather extensive uh, studies. So Melville Herskovitz was there, Donald Pearson was there, Ruth Landis was there, uh, E. Franklin Frazier was there, 
Uh, you also had uh, Arturo Ramos and uh, Edison Canero. Uh, to, uh, Arturo Ramos was a medical psychiatrist, um, rather important national figure in the social sciences, and Edison Canero, at, at, as you know, a, a, an important local figure in Bahia. These men and women were producing an awful lot of literature, which turned out to be very uh, attractive source material for writing, looking back on and, and, and writing a cultural history of the time period. You also had novels from Jorge uh, Amado. You had the field notes of Melville and Francis Herskovitz, which went into much more detail about the Candomblé community in particular than uh, their actual published work. There was also some secondary literature in anthropology, looking back on the period, and also um, Kim Butler's work in, in, in history as well. And so there was a nice convergence then of source material to write a cultural history and my own interests in, in the relationship between the dominant and subordinate class during the Vargas era. So the question was, how did I sort of focus on, arrive at the idea to look more closely at the, the popular festivals and, and the carnival to flesh out this cultural history? Well, I think to begin with, um, um, would you tell us a bit about the, the way that these, uh, that Afro-Brazilian cultural practices are being seen by the dominant class just prior to this period. Um, because what this book is also about is about a period of, of great change in how these practices are viewed. Um, so from a time in which they are prescribed and looked down upon to a time in which they are, to some extent, embraced by the dominant class, although, um, as you write, for very specific reasons and in very specific, sometimes limited ways. So uh, just... What is, the, what is the situation for the subordinate class, for Afro-Brazilians in Bahia in, say, the late 1920s, um, just at the cusp of this, this period in which you're talking about? Uh, okay. The 1930s, a, a, a political, uh, a market for political periodization. Uh, prior to the Vargas era, you have uh, Brazil's first republic, or its, its old republic, um, the Old Republic began in 1889, uh, one year after the abolition of, of slavery in Brazil in 1888, which meant the next few years, the first few decades of the 20th century, uh, were Brazil's post-abolition period. And it was during this period that black culture, in particular in Bahia, was seen by the white minority elite as uncivilized, barbaric, um, dooming Brazil by his future, uh, holding back progress, and Candomblé in particular was seen as primitive and barbaric and superstitious and anti-modern. Uh, the main symbol of, of Bahia uh, nowadays is uh, the African-Brazilian Bayana, the woman uh, of, who has a relationship with Candomblé, the woman of Candomblé, who's also a food peddler in the streets, uh, yeah, selling a carajé, sort of a, um, a black-eyed pea bean fritter. Hmm. This woman uh, was very pejoratively seen as an emblem of everything that was wrong about uh, Bahia's African-Brazilian working class. Um, she was sell she was in the streets, and she was a woman. Therefore, that meant she she had no honor. Uh, she was selling food that was seen to be unhygienic, uh, therefore breaking all sorts of uh, notions of cleanliness uh, associated with progress. Um, and, of course, she was associated with candomblé, which 
again, being barbaric and primitive. Um, so she was, a, in, in particular, a, a target. Um, also targeted was the African-Brazilian martial arts known as capoeira, which is kind of a combination of, of, sort of dance, uh, performance, and an actual fighting art, an actual martial art. Uh, this was outlawed, um, or where it wasn't outlawed, it was still persecuted by the police. It was, again, seen as problematic. It was seen as a, as a thing of um, uh, degeneracy, uh, social marginalization, and not the way that the Baini wanted to see their, their nation. Um, so Candomblé, Capoeira, uh, the individuals associated with this, and also even um, samba music, despite the fact that it went on to become... Uh, one of the principal markers of, of not just Bahianness but Brazilianness, uh, samba music at the time. It, the elite had a very uneasy relationship with that as well because it was also something that was coming up um, out from the uh, African Bahian working classes. Uh, but in particular, drumming, any kind of percussive drumming, uh, music and dance, uh, that that was also seen as primitive and barbaric and uh, keeping people up late at night, which meant they couldn't get to work on time and they couldn't be productive citizens, et cetera, et cetera. So, as I've said, this is a book, you know, which charts a change from this reality uh, before the 1930s, largely, um, to something rather different and uh, where these practices are increasingly uh, being displayed in public with the permission of the dominant class. Um, sometimes, you know, encouraged by the dominant class, they become symbols of Bahia and even symbols of Brazil in the larger sense. Um, how does how does that change begin? Where does where does that start to happen? It starts to happen in the southeast with uh, the emergence of uh, a group of artists and intellectuals who were embracing modernism and a specific Brazilian version of modernism, which was going to celebrate things that were Brazilian. It was going to um, insist uh, not just on importing culture from the North Atlantic, from Paris, uh, but was going uh, to, to rework that culture by bringing uh, aspects or facets um, of Brazilianness uh, into a, a kind of a, a, a cultural dialogue. And part of what was Brazilian that was going to be uh, part of this cultural dialogue between the North Atlantic and, and modernity and, and Brazil was African-Brazilian traditions, uh, particularly musical traditions. And so, for example, um, you had uh, a fantastic Brazilian composer, Hector Villalobos, uh, whose innovation was to recompose classical music and importing uh, certain strains of kind of musical compositions from popular music in Brazil. And you know, that's, that's kind of indicative of, of, of this sort of merging, uh, which, which creates a space and sort of drives, drives a little bit of a wedge uh, of acceptance of Brazilian popular culture, Brazilian cultural practices, etc. Now that is happening in the Southeast in the 1920s. Um, in Bahia, there's a, there's a slower response, um, and it's a smaller response, but it's still an important response nonetheless in the cultural area, uh, which is uh, the embrace of Bahian cultural practices by, for example, the author Jorge Amado. 
who in the very early 30s uh, starts to write socialist, realist, or Soviet realist type novels about the poverty in Salvador. But he writes them in a way that brings in so much of the African-Brazilian culture. And a number of his protagonists are, in fact, also African-Brazilian from these cultural worlds of, of Candomblé, of Capoeira, of, of Samba, etc. And, and he then is the biggest cultural wedge in the 1930s to, to sort of open up the possibility of celebrating these practices, at least among artists and intellectuals. Now, there's not a huge artist and intellectual class in Bahia, but that's an, that's but Jorge Amado, of course, once you've got him, how much more do you need? Because he goes on to become you know, Brazil's most published author, apart from Paulo Coelho, I believe. One notable thing about Amado's works is not only are Afro-Brazilians his protagonists, but some of his protagonists are, um, as you point out, based on, to a large extent, actual public figures in the uh, Afro-Brazilian community in Bahia, who are themselves beginning to work towards a greater public acceptance of their religious and cultural practices. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of these figures and what they were doing. Okay. So, so in addition to the cultural sphere, there's also a, a, a political change after 1930 that's very important in Bahia. Bahia, up until 1930, had been governed by the landed oligarchy and agro-export interests. With the arrival of Getulio Vargas to power in 1930, he nominates governors of the states. And the governor that he nominates for Bahia, is, uh, his name is Jurisi Magalhães. He's not from the landed oligarchy. He's not even from Bahia. He represents uh, the junior military officer, urban, um, middle-class reformer um, component of early 20th century Brazil. And when he comes into Bahia, uh, he first has to make, um, he first has to secure his position politically. And he does this in two ways. He does it, uh, one, by reaching out to the oligarchs um, or enough of the oligarchs and giving them what they need uh, politically to ensure that they will continue to round up the votes and keep Jodice uh, Magalhães in power. But he's also going to try and copy what Getulio Vargas is doing on the national stage, which is uh, building up a working class support as, as well, uh, an urban working class support. Now, he, he goes about doing this in a very clever way. He doesn't clash with the oligarchic interests, which is some of what Vargas was actually doing on the national level. Uh, Magalhães doesn't have enough power to do that, so he's got to, he's got to make his peace uh, with them there. His relationship with the, the working class, uh, and Brazil, the Bahia doesn't have a big industrial working class at this point, so that's not going to get him very far. So I, I'm suggesting in the book that as an outsider, um, as somebody who's on board with some of these new intellectual changes in, in Brazil that except um, popular culture, popularly working-class culture, the African-Brazilian heritage, um, that, that he creates a space that facilitates or, 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 or attracts um, the possibility of the African Bahians themselves, the practitioners of Capoeira, the practitioners of Candomblé, um, to get more involved in pushing for 
the continuation of this possibility of acceptance and, and ultimately perhaps even uh, we don't know in the 1930s how this is going to work out, but perhaps even uh, by the 40s, 50s, and 60s, an actual acceptance of candomblé, of African Bayan religious practices as legitimate. And we can see uh, this happening in particular in one uh, one moment. It's a sort of a microcosm of this these dynamics, and that's the Afro-Brazilian Congress of 1937, which is hosted in Salvador, and it's headed by Edison Carneiro and a few other uh, of his um, co-travelers, uh, young Turks, if you will. They, they had their own um, rebel academy. They were friends with George Amado. Uh, they really wanted to push for the acceptance of Candomblé, and they wanted to push for the legitimacy of African-Brazilian cultural practices. And this Congress then based in Salvador, um, Edison Carneiro uh, brokered, um, we don't actually know how it exactly played out, but we do know Jurassi Magalhães was quite positive about the, the, the Congress and actually arranged for there to be some state subsidy for the Congress. And in the meantime, Edison Carneiro uh, had good connections within a number of Tejeros, uh, those are the temples of Candomblé, and invited ranking participate in the actual Congress themselves. And a number of these characters, uh, one being uh, Maya Nina or Mother Nina, who was a Candomblé priestess, <clears throat> a very powerful and, and uh, highly respected priestess in Bahia, she agreed to participate and to actually write up one of the papers that was going to be among uh, the presentations at the Congress. And so that's a moment where uh, you can see the kind of the coming together of the intellectual middle class, the state government, and the actual practitioners of the African Bayan practices themselves in 1937. Another example really quickly was, was uh, that Magalhães hosted in 1936 um, or 1937, we're not quite sure what the date was, uh, a Capoeira exhibition at the gubernatorial palace. And it was shortly thereafter that the person who oversaw that performance, uh, Mestri Bimba, uh, was given the first official license to train and practice capoeira in the state of Bahia. So in addition to these, uh, these kind of specific events uh, involving um, close relationships between elites and uh, members of either the Afro-Brazilian community or those interested in advancing Afro-Brazilian culture, um, the Afro-Brazilian Congress, or uh, this kind of involvement with the government on, on a, in particular cases. There's also, um, and taking up a, a large portion of your book, um, discussion of this sort of social institution of festivals, which are bringing Afro-Brazilian culture into a kind of uh, almost mass culture setting of Bahia um, out in the street or um, in public, uh, very accessible and observed by everyone in the city and everyone you know, to an extent in Brazilian society. You know, there's, there's so much uh, kind of going on in these festivals, uh, as you point out, like negotiation of religious identity and racial identity going on. I wonder if you can tell us, you know, where, where do where where do these festivals uh, start to become 
where, where did they become important in this uh, in this process that you're you're describing already? Yeah. Okay. The um, <clears throat> when when I first uh, started doing the work for uh, to, to, to kind of write a cultural history of of the Vargas era and Bahia, the the, the, the one of the ways to get at um, working class life and, and whether there actually were um, changes in the way people lived, the way people thought about uh, Brazil, the way they thought about their region, the way they thought about what Vargas was doing, um, their attitudes, their values, whether the, 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 there was much impact in people's lives emanating from the Southeast. Um, to start that process, uh, I initiated a whole series of oral history um, interviews. And one the purpose really was to try and understand more about ordinary people's lives during, during this time period. And in that sense, it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, it was a real uh, sort of eye-opening experience into what mattered, what young people did for fun, um, where they did it, what was kind of the structure of their social lives outside of the workplace. And one of the things that kept coming up that was important to them was the popular festivals. They wanted to talk about their participation in carnival. They wanted to talk about um, the, not all of them loved carnival. Some of them loved other religious festivals. So for example, they loved uh, the, the, the parades for um, Our Lady of Conceição da Praia or uh, Santa Barbara or uh, the, the waterborne festival for the, uh, this Senhor dos Navegantes, our Lord of the Navigators, and even 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 the even the, the so there were, you can kind of look at the people and they divide them up into two different groups. There were the more public ones, the ones who actually got involved in these things, wanted to talk about uh, what they did during Carnival, wanted to talk about um, where, where they were during uh, the Festival of Bonfim, for example. And then there were many others who uh, mentioned that they didn't participate too actively, but they were there. They loved to uh, appreciate. They loved to go and observe uh, these rituals. And that sort of clued me in on the, the power um, of festival and the, the public rituals in Bahia that were so extensive that in the book that I look at five or six major Festivals, so there wasn't just you know one or two. That it, there was there was quite a few, and there were a number of others I also could have could have actually looked at. Uh, but I looked at the main ones, and it it lined up very strongly with a lot of the theoretical literature on carnival and a lot of the theoretical literature, uh, Clifford Gates, for example, and Victor Turner on the power of festival ritual, um, and also there was quite a lot happening in historiography and colonial Latin American history too with, with festival um, and the, the parades of, of the viceroys and entering the, the, the capital cities and things like that. Uh, so that, that all kind of combined to make me think, right, here is, here is a way to, to try and move beyond uh, the 1930s, um, that period of 1930 to 1937 with Jurisi and the houses of Candomblé and Capoeira, and, and see how the shifts, the thin end of the wedge, kind of developed during the dictatorship after 1937 to 1945, and then beyond as well. I wonder if, uh, just 
quickly here, um, what sets Carnival apart from these these other festivals? Um, you know, I get a sense in the book that it has a bit to do with the uh, the sort of national versus regional scope of of that particular celebration. But I wonder if you could, you know, kind of go into that a little bit. Carnival's Carnival is. Uh, I look at it that they're very similar in that there is a Catholic reason for having a procession on a particular day that's related to a particular saint um, or a particular church. The Catholic church itself the uh, and the people that are associated with the, the brotherhoods and sisterhoods of that Catholic church are in charge of organizing the festivities uh, sorry, not the festivities, the, the actual procession itself. There is a whole series of, of um, novenas, uh, masses, and, and uh, sort of liturgical uh, ceremonies within the church related to the particular saint's day and the parade that's going to accompany it. Uh, meanwhile, outside the church, there's the popular festival, um, the food stalls, the drink stalls, the stalls that um, are also selling fruit if the fruit happens to be in season. Uh, this is this area is, is sort of lit up with strings of lights. Um, there's a lot of people uh, who set up their their, rest, their mini restaurants. Um, there's chairs. There's places for music. There's a bandstand. There's places to dance. All that happens mostly in the evenings um, for two to three days you know, around that particular saint's day, sometimes a little bit longer. Now, Carnival um, doesn't have a particular saint, but it, it obviously has a particular day that, that Carnival is going to be celebrated. The centerpiece of Carnival, much like the, the other popular festivals, is a, is a parade. And I think the main difference is going to be that the festivities that happen in the squares outside the church, um, which are called Largos. Uh, those festivities are also happening during Carnival, but they're more organized. They're more organized according to uh, groups of young men, uh, young men and women, or just young women, who want to be part of a, a wider set of kind of parades and celebrations and coming out publicly um, to, to be part of the festivity of Carnival. So Carnival has a, has a, a a wider festive catchment area than the the, the other public festivals. And also, um, yeah, I, th I think I'll stop there, but other things will come up and, and, and I, I can mention them as we go along. Well, just one thing to point out is that those, uh, those groups also have, would you say they also have, because they're more organized groups, they have a degree of, of uh, political and economic and cultural uh not even necessarily influence, but they, they are playing a, a, they have a more definite role. It's, it's supposed to be more, the more nebulous idea of Afro-Brazilians or working class Brazilians as kind of a group. In Carnival, you can point to groups of people who are going out and they are part of organizing this public performance, which is also critical to the tourist economy and to sort of the cultural sense of Brazilianness, but especially Bahianness. Absolutely, absolutely. Carnival was uh, a fantastic opportunity for 
uh, groups that were strongly identified with the African heritage and African Bayan cultural practices to come out and exhibit. Uh, there, it was, it was, uh, for example, the percussive drumming, the percussive musical um, performances. Those had been part of Carnival since Carnival began in the 1880s, uh, 1890s in Bahia. And it was a, those groups uh, were very Afrocentric. Uh, they call, one of them called themselves um, the African Merrymakers. Another group called themselves um, uh, the African Embassy. They would often dress up in what they perceived to be you know, African clothes, exhibiting, uh, manifesting a kind of a, a, an Afrocentric uh, worldview. Um, so, I, yes, that is a, that is an important component of Carnival that distinguishes it. Mostly from the other popular festivals, it's a, it's a tricky question for me actually because when you're in this, you you kind of stop asking the, that that kind of question. You know, how how is Carnival different from the others? Um, it gets its own chapter, uh, so obviously I've thought about this, but it, it it's catching me a little bit off. But I, so so if I haven't answered it particularly well, just just uh, keep pushing. No, no, I think that's fine. Um, and in fact, like. Uh, there's also a uh, similarity in all of these festivals, um, one of which that you point out is that they are extensively covered by uh, journalists, by the media. So I wonder if you could you know, tell us a little bit about the role that journalists are playing here. The idea that, that uh, a discourse of acceptance and uh, of African Bayan practices is going to take place and that that acceptance – um, is also is part of a wider reformulation of Bayan regional identity. Uh, the the main actors involved in that process are uh, the African Bayan uh, African Bayans themselves, um, the politicians who come to the uh, popular festivals um, and subsidize them, and also subsidize Carnival. Uh, but the, the big player um, in, in terms of reshaping the dominant discourse is going to be the, the journalists. And I, I just want to point out though that um, backing up a little bit, the popular festivals, uh, one of the reasons why they're so central to the acceptance of African Brazilian practices is because in addition to uh, the, the Catholic elements of the popular festivals, the, the procession for the saint, uh, the masses inside the church, there was – an awful lot of African Bayan cultural practices involved as well. And so the festivals in, in the Largo, in the square outside the church, they would often have samba there. They would often have capoeira there, as well as, as, well as the eating, as well as the drinking, as well as the dancing uh, to you know, jazz bands and things like that. Um, also, these Catholic saints had their own um, African Bayan analog within the cosmology of, of Candomblé. And this syncretism then brought the African Bayan uh, cultural practitioners into the festivals um, through a different vector than through Catholicism. And so, for example, you have the, the Our Lord of the Good End, um, which is celebrated on the second Thursday in January of every year. <clears throat> at the Church of Our Lord of the Good End, and there is the high Catholic ritual practices associated with it, but at the same time there's also a washing of the steps outside the church, at the foot of the church, leading up into the church, which you could consider popular Catholicism, uh, 
uh, washings are quite popular in Portugal uh, and popular Catholicism in Portugal in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. That's something that came over uh, to Bahia as well. But the washing for our Lord of the Good End isn't just for our Lord of the Good End. He's also for Oshala, who is a deity within the Candomblé uh, cosmology. And that syncretism then means that these, not just Carnival with its um, African Bayan percussive groups, for example, uh, not just Carnival has an element of African Bayan cultural practices, but also all these other um, popular festivals do as well. So the journalists who begin to report more and more on these aspects of the popular festivals um, play an important role in increasing the acceptance and the language that they use for describing these African Bayan cultural practices um, is a very positive one beginning around 1936, 1937. Um, it's a bit ambivalent at first uh, and it gradually becomes more and more positive moving up through the 30s and, and getting into the 40s and then by the 1950s. Um, the coverage is much greater of the popular festivals themselves, but also within that, the coverage of the African Brazilian, African Bahian elements of the festivals um, is much greater as well. Um, just as one example, I noted that you described a trend of earlier on journalists describing uh, condomblade religious elements as being sort of contained within the Catholic elements. But then, as you said, by the uh, later 40s and the 50s, you have journalists describing the Candomblé elements kind of on their own, um, and in fact, to some extent, focusing on those as representative of the festivals among Afro-Brazilians, not necessarily to the exclusion of the Catholic elements, but certainly to a much greater extent than they had been uh, earlier in the decade. Exactly, exactly right. And, and, and you can see there's a, there's a big moment in Carnival as well, which, which I talk about, uh, when the elite clubs, and, and those are the clubs associated with the dominant class, the political and economic elite, the, the, the social elite. Uh, this is one of their big moments uh, when they build massive, great big floats, um, at least for the time, and parade through the city <clears throat> as part of Carnival. And in the 1930s, leading up to uh, World War II, and then during World War II, the elite clubs take a real hit economically and they can't put their floats out there. And so what's left for the press to report on and to talk about is the groups that are filling the gap, the vacuum and the groups that are filling the vacuum are the small carnival associations uh, known as blocos or uh, uh, cordones as uh, sort of blocks, cordons, um, uh, but also the African Bahian Batucadas, which are a single file group of, of between so nine and, and 20 young men, almost exclusively young men, um, playing percussive instruments and weaving their way through the city. There's also the Afrochets, which are the public extension of Candomblé song and music, um, reshaped uh, more, in more secular versions um, to be performed during carnival. And so you have these small groups that the newspapers um, start to eulogize and, and talk about as being, you know, the real heart and soul of Carnival. And it's not just the Batucadas, it's not just the Afrochés, but the, the, the role of the Batucadas and the Afrochés is quite central 
um, in this in, in this moment when popular carnival, not elite carnival, but popular carnival, is really seizing the imagination of the of the, the journalist in Bahia. And yet, despite the uh, the kind of growing acceptance of the the popular aspects of the carnival or of festivals in general of Afro Brazilian culture, Afro Bahian culture in general, um, as you point out, there are limitations on this acceptance throughout this entire time. Right? Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could could talk a little bit about the uh, the the points in which the dominant culture was not willing to accept Afro Brazilian culture on all of its points. Yeah. You know what? When when I was in Bahia um, early on uh, in the research process, one of the things that it's always seemed contradictory, and and was partly why I I got into asking the questions I did was associated with African Bahian culture and even uh, the African Brazilian aesthetic, Um, but at the same time. In my conversations with 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 ordinary, uh, your average Bahian, um, and particularly conversations with with somebody in the middle class or the upper class, you know, I would hear things that to me seemed very disparaging about African Bahian culture, and it's it still seemed like there was an awful lot of it, it wasn't quite the degree of, of kind of disgust that I'd, I'd heard in Guatemala, for example, about uh, indigenous Guatemalans from. Uh, the, the white middle class and upper class in Guatemala City, but it but it had those those tones to it, and it was that contrast of something that's so massively accepted and a, a, the kind of the public face of Bahia, essential to its regional identity, is also rather harshly critiqued by wealthy or or, or not working class Bahians at the same time. Uh, that critique nowadays is is still a continuation of of a critique that that. As we talked about earlier, comes comes out of you know, the 19th century, the early 20th century. It hasn't gone away, and one of the things that I, I thought it was important to call attention to, um, as we discussed this kind of cultural inclu- inclusion and the creation of Bahian identity, um, was that it, it had its limits. That, that cultural politics, um, the c- coming together of of, of middle class. Um, artists and intellectuals, of some political figures, of journalists who occasionally were members of the artistic and intellectual middle class, but also the African Bahian practitioners themselves, the people in the Batucadas, the leaders of the Batucadas, the, the priests and priestesses of Candomblé, uh, Capoeira um, leadership, that kind of coming together to kind of push for this idea of, of inclusion um, was you know, a very positive step forward in relation to what had gone on before 1930, but it had its limits. And to try and explore those limits and what, what, how those limits were established um, was, was, I think, very important to understanding just how far cultural politics went in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. And it might also help Kind of makes more, makes sense as well of of Bahia's current situation. So I was I was quite interested in in trying to explore this cultural inclusion in a way that might help me understand better, uh, or, or all of us understand better, how, what the situation was like in Bahia in terms of of cultural inclusion, but this very stark 
racial and class-based inequality that, that plagues Salvador uh, to, to this very day. There's a there's an interesting um, um, point there, which is the sense that there there are behind uh, these uh, sort of dominant class acts of reaching out to Afro-Brazilian culture, um, behind their their degree of acceptance that they're willing to extend to Afro-Brazilian culture. There are some, um, to some extent, very kind of shrewd political and economic goals going on here, um, both by the uh, the Vargas regime in the, the 30s and 40s, but also by by in elites with their own regional interests. Um, to what extent, I would say, do you think this is, is motivated, this acceptance of Afro-Brazilian culture is motivated by economic or political self-interest? I think a continuum. A number of, sort of journalists um, who were had quite progressive positions on a number of um, uh, issues. You know, we're also champion, championing this cultural inclusion, and I, I wouldn't put too much down to you know cynicism on, on their part. Um, I think as you move into the realm of, of more formal politics, then it, it's pretty suggestive that there's an awful lot of of uh, convenience here. And it comes from the fact that you have this phenomenal parallel going on between events at the national level and, and, and events at the regional level. And at the national level, you still have Getulio Vargas um, in the 1950s um, having champions capoeira by referring to it as Brazil's national fighting style, uh, shaking the hands of Mestre Bimba, the same person who was at the gubernatorial palace in 1936 under Jurassi Magalhães, giving a capoeira exhibition in Bahia. You have uh, the rise of samba to becoming a national musical icon uh, of Brazil. You have um, the role, uh, the importance of carnival in national identity and in the national capital, Rio de Janeiro. And carnival, the schools, um, the, the groups that prayed at carnival were called samba schools. Bahia had a claim to, to having a role in, in, in the creation of, of the music samba, um, not least because Bahians had immigrated, migrated from Bahia in the early, late 19th, early 20th century to Rio de Janeiro, and it kind of put their, their cultural traditions into the musical mix that was there already. Uh, the samba schools themselves had uh, a requirement to have a wing of Bayanas. Uh, women dressed up as Bayanas from Bahia, actually dancing in the carnival in Rio de Janeiro, sort of expressing those links in their own kind of public performative moment there. So if that's all happening at the national level, uh, Bahians who could, were either being cynical or otherwise could see that it benefited Bahia and it, to, to go ahead and piggyback and, and to continue things about Samba in Bahia and Candomblé and Capoeira during the popular festivals uh, to continually refer to the fact that this, these were now icons of Brazilianness and that this was a way, uh, a very clear way, um, not think so much about politicians, but maybe think about um, Rodrigo Tavares, uh, you know, a newspaper editor, a director of two newspapers in, in Bahia, um, a, a very a kind of astute political individual, very aware of which way uh, the national winds were blowing 
very keen on processes of, of, sort of development, of modernization for Brazil, um, also for Bahia, perhaps eventually kind of seeing Bahia as, as uh, a little bit behind the Southeast, but wanting to catch up. He, I would say, has both progressive sentiments up to a point that this cultural inclusion, this acceptance of these practices is the right thing to do. It is a the democratic thing to do. Um, but at the same, and at the same time, it's going to help Bahia hitch its wagon to the success of development processes in the Southeast and Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. So it's not something that can be described simply as, as elites taking advantage of Afro-Brazilians. Um, it's it's a mixture of of kind of as you say progressivism and economic and political concerns going on there, and it it does, yeah. however, not quite reach to the level of full equality. No, no, I, it it doesn't. And I, I take pains in the book to point this out almost at the end of every chapter, and certainly in the conclusion that including African Bahian cultural practices into the wider mix of of culture that represents Bahia. Within that wider mix, you, you also have a cultural hierarchy. And accepting capoeira or accepting candomblé into Bahianness, the, the codification of, of that is not going to equivalate it with Catholicism, with the Catholic Church, with uh, a law degree, with a medical degree, with um, uh, notions of science, of progress, um, and so forth. So the journalists weren't losing control of their acceptance of, of um, African Bahian practices. And the politicians certainly weren't either. Uh, it didn't happen that often. It didn't happen um, every day. It happened during certain symbolic moments. It turned out to be very powerful, but also reached their limits. That, and this is one of the you know, the issues going forward and into the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, which, I, which I don't do. Um, and in fact, there's very little written on that time period. But to see um, more about how that, that cultural inclusion, that cultural political framework um, continued uh, to be a frame of reference for African Bahians themselves and for their middle class allies, kind of push for greater recognition and even perhaps uh, political and economic inclusion. The, my sense uh, from doing some uh, additional research for the next project uh, and also reading the historiography, uh, also reading a little bit about uh, economic development in the 50s and 60s, one of the things that we're seeing is, is that uh, even Odorico Tavares um, seems to shift away from a, a register of inclusion as a, a kind of a Brazilian way of creating democracy through, through cultural mixing um, to more of a focus on development and that it's actually going to be uh, development and, and economic growth that's going to bring African Bahians and African Brazilians into, into the mix even further. Well, that's actually great because we're, uh, we're almost out of time here. So um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, this new project, uh, you know, just before we end? Okay. Um, the... The, the direction that I'm going now is exactly this, to, to see after 1954, after 1955, when Bahia starts to focus much more on developmentalism and they, they move from um, economic emphases and policies that support agro-export 
to policies and emphases that support state-directed industrial development. Now, that's going to be on the back of the development of, of oil and the oil industry in Bahia. And it's a, it's a rather slow process, uh, but it takes everybody's attention um, and, and focuses it on developmentalism. And again, there's, there's a wider national trend as well in the late 50s, um, early 60s, which is hyper-developmentalist, progress and modern, and, and, and those become you know, the key watchwords. And this is the period when the, the great modernist city, Brasilia, the new national capital, is actually constructed. So, so again, Bahia and elites are following uh, the national trends and hooking themselves to, to, to those sorts of developments. And, but in this case, they see it as, as, as a stronger link than just culture because Bahia has the oil. Bahia is the, the main supplier for domestic oil for Brazil for the next 30 years um, or so. So what, what in the midst of all this developmentalism happens to – it's going to be hard to work out what happens to, to the African Bahian working class itself. But what happens to the, the – the discourse, the cultural framework that was set up in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Does it go into some sort of hibernation? Is there still, uh, does it take a different form? Does it start to include more notions of developmentalism? Um, because we know that in the 1970s, from 1974, there's a, there's a kind of a culturalist revival in Bahia, a uh, very Afrocentric um, new cultural politics with the founding of Iliaia and carnival associations. Uh, known as Blocos Afros, of which there come to be over a thousand of them in, in, in the 1980s in Bahia. Um, but what happened in between? What happened in between the period I look at and then this sort of uh, reflorescence in the 1970s? Well, we'll be interested to find out. I'm looking forward to your next work. Thanks. Thank so, you. Um, Scott Ickes, um, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it, Bryce. Thank you very much.